0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Each year about this time, we celebrate Good Shepherd Sunday. We get to sing some of our favorite sheep songs or maybe songs about our Lord's loving, tender, shepherd-like care. And we're reminded of the Sunday school picture of Jesus carrying that lost lamb across his shoulders. The one that wandered off. The one he left the other 99 of the flock behind to go and rescue. The lessons bring to mind those idyllic pictures, uh, including, you know, the flock following the shepherd. Following is the key, not being driven from behind. You know, maybe you had those kind of pictures uh, in your room when you were a child. They're pictures of God's grace and his peace. The oldest uh, painting of the good shepherd still in existence was found in one of the Roman catacombs where persecuted believers used to meet in secret. It dates back to the 2nd century a time when Christian art was prohibited and could get you killed, or even worse, maybe eaten in the arena. The idea of Jesus as a good shepherd is all very calm and relaxing. It's reassuring. It says that Jesus loves me, uh, loves you that much. Often uh, it offers that same kind of peace as you walk through life together. And one day uh, he will carry you home all the way to heaven. But now that you're all grown up, we can look at the other side of the story, the one some of his listeners were hearing. For our Lord's enemies, it was more like watching a psychological thriller play out. He had their heads spinning. From the other side of the story, from their viewpoint, this chapter of John has all the elements of an edge-of-your-seat nail-biter. Ian Irvine, an Australian author of 34 novels, mostly fantasy and eco-thrillers. Wait a minute, Uh, what exactly is an eco-thriller? I didn't, that's what I ask. Never having read any of his work, the first thing I ask. Well, it turns out that an eco-thriller is a book uh, in which the action revolves around an environmental calamity that might be worldwide in scope or maybe one that will just change a significant aspect of the Earth uh, as we know it. Now, if you're thinking like I was about a story that where maybe your compost pile comes alive and begins consuming the neighborhood pets, well, you'd be wrong. <laughs> But if you're thinking like Jurassic Park, well, you'd be right. That one involves conflicts with nature. Anyway, Ian says that a good story, at the very least, has a strong hero figure and an adversary. And the tension and the suspense uh, builds from the struggle between the two and the anxiety of of uh, uncertainty of the outcome. Uh, that sounds sort of familiar for gospels, doesn't it? So our lesson uh, comes from chapter 10 of John's gospel, but the tension. And the suspense in it really uh, have already been building from a story leading into it about Jesus healing a man who was born blind. There had never been a miracle like that before. The man was later interrogated by the Pharisees who were looking for some way to condemn Jesus for it. The general opinion at that time was that if you were born blind, it must have been because of something you or even your parents did. Uh, You would have have to have done that in the womb, but that's what they figured. Uh, It was God's judgment on you. Before the miracle, this man was a beggar. We don't even know for sure how much he really knew about who Jesus was. But by simply telling and retelling his miracle story and sticking to it, the Pharisees were incensed. He was so excited that he asked them if they would like to become his disciples too. That's when they cast the poor man out of the temple. When Jesus heard what had happened, he goes to the man and he he kind of tells him who he is, uh, the son of man. And, of course, uh, the man professes his faith. The Pharisees have been watching and listening to this whole exchange. And when he's done, Jesus turns to them and he says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Are we also blind, they ask him? Well, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The tension between them is so thick, you could cut it with a knife. A psychological thriller, right? They've been waiting and hoping for the Messiah. Uh, everybody did. And who else but the Messiah could have given a blind man his sight? No one, only God, or the son of God who came into our world as a son of man, a human being who was true man, but still true God. And he was their worst nightmare, really, in that sense. Exactly who and what they needed but not even close to whom they expected. He fit the prophecies written about him hundreds of years before perfectly, and he would continue to fulfill them all the way up until his Easter resurrection. But he didn't fit their notion of what he should be like, and he certainly wasn't showing the respect they were used to receiving. They could see Jesus, the man, he was standing right in front of them, but they were blind to his divinity, they were blind to God's grace. And so they remain steeped in their own unforgiven guilt. How long will you keep us in suspense, they ask. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You know, was he the one or wasn't he? They'd already had several false messiahs come through, men who had stepped out of the desert and gained a small following, but they never really lasted long and, and, and neither did their movement. You know, was there even a chance that Jesus was the one? You know, it would be a very bad thing for them to wind up straddling the fence on this one until not only their sight but their futures were damaged permanently. Their fear of who he really might be is actually what eventually got him crucified. You know, Some of them may have uh, come close to wanting to believe. We know some of them did come to faith. Um, but uh, many of them must have almost been there. He fits so many of the prophecies. And so Jesus gives them a, a final chance. Or you might say a little final push. And there would be no more suspense after this. I and the Father are one, he told them. Very plainly. Blasphemy is what they heard, though. And off the fence they fell right into the pit. The verse just after our lesson says, uh, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Now he escaped, but that's where their side of the story was headed all along, wasn't it? Murdering the very source of their salvation. Now, our side of the story is a completely different tale. We see a good news story about a God who came to save us when we were helpless and, eternally speaking, homeless. The story of the good shepherd. You know, No psychological stomach knots here, no suspense, no tension. Just the story of God's greatest gift ever. Israel's leaders had been compared to shepherds in the uh, ancient Old Testament world, but many of them were a long way from being called good shepherds. In Ezekiel chapter 34, the Old Testament prophet compares the bad shepherd kings of Israel who would greedily feed themselves but not the sheep um, with a loving God who will feed the sheep freely and allow them to lie down in safety. God will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bind up the injured, and strengthen the weak, just like a good shepherd would be expected to do. To ensure that it was done well, God said that he had plans to, to set up a better kind of shepherd over them, My servant David, he says, who shall feed them and be their shepherd. And David was a pretty good shepherd of God's people. But God was looking even beyond uh, David to one of his ancestors. That good shepherd would be Jesus. A son of David according to his human nature. And a son of God according to his divine nature. Who would love the sheep so unconditionally with a love so deep he would put their welfare above his own. He would give his life for the sheep. And I count myself blessed to be one, and I hope you do, too. I'm totally content and relieved that I'm a sheep in the flock of Jesus Christ, and I'm thrilled to think that he even knows who I am or that he called me at all. But mostly I'm thrilled to recognize his voice when he calls and that whatever he allows into my life, I know that he ultimately has my interests at heart. I find that the promise of a better world waiting very comforting and and assuring, a forever world beyond this one. that he's leading me there every day listen to some of the things that that are that he says in this this same chapter from john uh, i am the gate for the sheep whoever enters through me will be saved he will come in and find good pasture i've come that they have may, may have life and have it to the full jesus came to set us apart as his own to call us away from the evil in the world the wolves and the The predators who entice the sheep with their lives of a better way than God's way. But their way always turns out to be a a dead end. The wrong way. Jesus also said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He has a vested interest in us. He purchased us with his own shed blood. He's not like some, some hired hand who will run away at the first sign of danger and abandoning his flock to those who would destroy it, who would consume it with their darkness. Jesus suffered and died on a cross so that forgiven and restored by our faith in him, we might become his own. No one forced Jesus to be nailed to that cross for you and I. They didn't drag him there kicking and screaming. After an all-night kangaroo court found him guilty of blasphemy, a crime that carried the death sentence, he was taken before the Roman governor to have that sentence carried out. Only Rome was supposed to have the power to dole out capital punishment. And after further examination and a heated discussion between uh, Jesus' accusers and Pontius Pilate, he reluctantly ordered the Lord's crucifixion. But at any time, Jesus had said, he could call down legions of angels to rescue him. That might have saved our good shepherd the suffering and pain of crucifixion of the cross. But it would also have meant abandoning God's plan of salvation for us. And that was uh, something he loved us too much to ever do. Jesus loved us to death. When he said these things, his enemies thought he was demon-possessed, a raving lunatic. Their ears were, were filled with all the noises and empty promises of a sinful world. They heard only the call of their own wealth and authority. They had their own notions of what God's promised Savior of the world should be like, and those notions had made them blind in a much worse way than the blinder of the beggar that Jesus had healed. They were so focused on their desire for freedom from Rome that they didn't hear their own need for for freedom from the penalty of sin. And so they didn't recognize the Savior Shepherd who was standing right in front of them, clearly telling them who he was. In their blindness, they'd forgotten the Shepherd that God promised. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at some of the post resurrection appearances of Jesus. And this morning, we sort of jumped back in time a little bit to some of the events that would eventually lead up to Good Friday and Easter because they teach us who Jesus really was, true God and true man. He'd perform miracles that only God could do. And yet because he had freedom from the price owed for sin in mind and not freedom from Rome, he was rejected by the church leaders, some of the very people he'd come to save. I told you, he said, and you do not believe. The works, the miracles that I do in my Father's name bear witness. They speak for me. But you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. They listen to me. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It was talk like that that earned Jesus some very powerful enemies. but He was speaking some very powerful truths. He was who he said he was, as advertised by the prophets. No spin, you know, no airbrushing. I am the way and the truth and the life, he said. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way. Without a Savior, there'd be no heaven for any of us. It's the voice of truth, but it's also the voice of grace and love. He's earned us the right to call God Father and share in the heavenly kingdom with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not because we lived a good life or because we helped lots of other people. You don't get into heaven with uh, merit badges. The key to heaven is is the gate himself our good shepherd, Jesus. Now, we sheep, we tend to wander. Um, And and we've all had our wandering times, I suppose. We've all sought our own way, and and we've probably, uh, most of us anyway, have only succeeded in getting more lost as a result. I don't know, maybe the grass looked greener somewhere else. But just behind the trees, the wolves were lying in wait. But even in your wandering times, the good shepherd was out looking for us, because here we are this morning, you know, gathered together in his name, in his own house, his flock. I like being a sheep. I like that the good shepherd keeps track of me the old-fashioned way, hands-on through the Holy Spirit, and not driving from behind but leading with a calm, soothing voice through his living presence in my life. I like that when I wander off, he'll come and look for me and offer to bring me back into the fold by forgiving me and strengthening me to do better. I need that. We all need that because like all people, we have this this other side, the one the Bible calls a sinful nature. It's kind of like having an evil twin sheep living in your head who's always working to drive us away from the arms of the good shepherd back into a world only too eager to sink its claws back into us, the world the shepherd already rescued us from. And so when I hear Jesus' promise that our Heavenly Father is greater than all the voices and come-ons and temptations of the sinful fallen world out there, the constant clamor calling for my attention, I'm grateful and comforted to know that they can clamor all they want, but they can never snatch me away against my will. So we don't live in a perfect world. And so sometimes the sheep will get sick, and sometimes they'll die early or horribly And sometimes they'll get fleeced and fall on hard times. But only in this world. Only in this life. Not the next. No matter how this life goes, we're protected and loved and cared for. Because in Christ we have eternal security. In the arms of the good shepherd, we're safe. No tension, no trauma, no suspense. Just grace and mercy and love and a forever future with him in heaven one day. And you'll never have to look back because since your baptism into the faith, that's where your story's been headed all along. There's no reason for you to straddle the fence. You know, is he or isn't he? You've already entered through the gate. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.